Welcome to Pity Party, a podcast to end BSL. I'm your host, Sydney, and I'm so excited to dive into our episode today as we move one step closer to removing breed discriminatory legislation from Ontario, and really, anywhere that it still exists. When you think about why these laws were put into place, ultimately, it was to make communities feel safer. In many cases, these laws are put in place quickly, following highly publicized attacks or deaths. Now, we'll look at the media's portrayal of certain breeds of dogs and selective reporting of incidents in a later episode. But it's not hard to imagine how, several decades ago, politicians and lawmakers may have seen breed bans as the solution to their public safety issues. If the dogs are dangerous, get rid of the dogs, right? Well, of course not. It's not that simple. Throughout the course of this pandemic, we've all seen how clumsy and fallible some government's reaction to a crisis can be. They don't always get it right the first time around, or the second, or the third. We have to ask ourselves why then, in 2013 and 14, almost a decade after BSL was put in place, did Toronto have the highest number of reported dog bites this century? It would seem that the magical band-aid of BSL is not the cure-all Ontarians were led to believe it was. The good news is that there are better solutions out there, and today's episode is going to be dedicated to discussing the alternatives to BSL. I spoke with Emily Clare, who has been an incredible advocate for bully breed dogs for years now, and I asked how she first got involved. Like so many people, I never knew anything about BSL until I had a dog affected by the law. And my God, what a dog she was. <laughs> I, uh, I never had a dog growing up. I had an aquarium. And when I met my now husband, Michael, he'd had Bella for five years already. He rescued her after she'd been abandoned shortly after BSL came into effect in Ontario. And he soon realized that it was because she was pregnant that she'd been dumped. And when I first came to his place and met Bella, my only thought was, wow, what a beautiful dog. And she was so well behaved. I never had any thought about her appearance and remained oblivious about that until one day I was at a human resources workshop for work in Toronto. And as an icebreaking exercise, the facilitator suggested going around the table and telling the others about your family. And I didn't have my human child yet, so I bragged about our beautiful dog, just like most dog owners do. And someone in the group asked me what kind of a dog she was, and I just nonchalantly replied, she's a pit bull a term I have since learned not to use, and I'll get into that later. But the energy in the room changed instantly. Some people sat up straight in their chairs. I remember one guy crossed his arms, and there were no more questions about my dog. And I came home, and I told Michael about this, and he just kind of laughed at me, and he said he couldn't believe that I really didn't understand about the perception of her breed and said I should maybe do some research. And so I did, and what I found was not what the anti-pitbull club would expect. <laughs> I did not find a plethora of negative stories about these dogs. Instead, I found stories about how awful so many humans had been toward these dogs. I found stories of people who had abused these dogs, uh, about the disproportionate number of surrendered pitbull type dogs in shelters. And then I found out about dog fighting. And my God, humans have massively failed targeted breed dogs. I was just sick to my stomach. I remember looking at Bella and thinking, how the f could anyone ever, it just, it enraged me deeply. So I started reading books about exemplary bully breed dogs like Bella. 
uh, Wallace by Rui Yori was actually the first one of those books and to this day one of my favorites and I was already building a bond with Bella but the more I learned about dogs even dogs in general not just specific breed dogs the more I was excited about building a relationship with her alongside the one I was building with her dad at the time and then about a year after this HR training incident the case involving the Chatham dog fighting ring and the seized... Emily goes on to explain the heartache and compassion fatigue she experienced in getting involved with the Chatham 21 case. You may remember hearing about it in the news five years ago as it was a pretty big deal. The dogs were seized from a suspected dog fighting ring in Chatham and, shockingly, the OSPCA at the time came to the conclusion that the dogs were a menace to society and could not be rehabilitated. Luckily, the incredible people at Dogtail Sanctuary and advocates like Emily refused to accept that as an answer and for two years fought for these dogs' freedom. Amazingly, they eventually won and caused the OSPCA to revise their position on cases like this going forward. We will actually have several episodes dedicated to these dogs and how they've gone on to do incredible things later on. But what's important to know now is that Emily is a force to be reckoned with and she really knows her stuff when it comes to the effects of BSL. And that journey, as I've just described it, set the stage for me for the next few years of my life, even until now. It started with advocating for those Chatham dogs, and then the many areas of advocacy in which I've been involved since then. And Bella was the key to that door, and she's going to remain my inspiration for the rest of my life. I used to say quite often <laughs> that I may not see an end to BSL in her lifetime, but I sure as hell am going to see an end to it in mine. So let's take a break here for a minute and look at some of the numbers, because it's important to approach this issue from the side of facts. Let's compare Toronto to another great Canadian city, Calgary. In 2016, Toronto's per capita reported dog bites were one in every 1,937. In that same year, Calgary's per capita dog bites were only one in 5,065 people. So if we're already accounting for population, how does Calgary manage to have two and a half times fewer dog bites than Toronto? Well, unlike Toronto, which is subjected to Ontario's regressive BSL laws, Calgary instead has breed-neutral dangerous dog laws in place, and numerous programs have been built to educate children in schools about dog safety and promote responsible ownership. This has created an environment where the community feels like animal services and bylaws exist to support responsible owners. Their licensing and registration requirement is consistently met with between 93 and 98% compliance, where most other cities average between 10 and 30%. On top of this, they use the modest fees collected through this requirement to pay for the programs going back into the community at no cost to their taxpayers. This is a stark contrast to Ontario, where it's estimated that tens of millions of taxpayer dollars go towards enforcing BSL every year. This new model of responsible ownership was put in place by Calgary's former director of animal and bylaw services, Bill Bruce, who's been an advisor for the National Canine Research Council for over 10 years. It's amazing what happens when you look at addressing the actual underlying causes of a problem rather than applying a blanket solution. And the data reflects those results. Investigations into the underlying causes behind human-directed aggression in dogs come to varying conclusions about what leads a dog to bite or attack. But as the National Canine Research Council explains, mistaken beliefs about dog-specific characteristics have often diverted us from a consideration of critical factors 
pertinent to the discussion of community safety and dog ownership. In other words, you cannot reliably come to conclusions about human-directed aggression based solely on the breed, age, sex, or size of a dog. A 10-year study published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association looked at potentially preventable factors in 256 dog bite-related fatalities without the bias that had been present in previous studies and media reporting. They found seven factors that could have been within the control of dog owners or caretakers when these incidents occurred. Three main factors were found in around 85% of the cases. There was no able-bodied person present to intervene, the victim had no familiar relationship with the dogs, or the owner had failed to neuter or spay the dog. Two more factors were found in around 75% of the cases. Those were that the victim had a compromised ability, whether based on age or physical condition, to manage their interactions with the dog. Or the owner kept the dog as a resident rather than as a family pet. In more than a third of the cases, there was a record of the owner's prior mismanagement of the dog. And in 21% of the cases, there was evidence of the owner's abuse or neglect of the dog. It's important to note that this study, like several dog bite-related fatality studies published previously, found no evidence that one kind of dog is more likely to injure a human being than another. And in an overwhelming number of the cases studied, four or more of these seven factors co-occurred and ultimately may have led to these preventable deaths. So how do we protect communities with this knowledge? You may have already guessed the answer. A lot of it comes down to educating owners and the public about dog safety and enforcing dangerous dog laws that penalize irresponsible owners. The biggest problem with BSL is that it falsely appeases a misinformed public. It's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction panic policy that was implemented to make people believe that with one type of dog banned from our community, everybody's safe from dog bites. I mean, that's fundamentally how stupid this law is. First of all, the law names four breeds of dog, but then it also has this disclaimer, as you know, about any dog that looks substantially similar. Well, experts have shown this can include like 30 breeds of dogs. So using physical characteristics to describe what makes a pit bull is just idiotic. It's canine profiling. It's legalized discrimination. It's wrong. I know labs that have been mistaken and seized in Ontario under BSL. So my point is that BSL does not protect the public. I'm sure people have already told you that BSL did not bring down dog bite incidents in Ontario. It did not stop breeders from breeding banned dogs. And it certainly did not prevent dog fighting rings <laughs> in this province. So instead, it ripped apart hundreds and hundreds of innocent families whose dogs did nothing but look a certain way. And some of those dogs are sent to other provinces for adoption. Some of those dogs are euthanized. What disturbs me the most of all is that some of those dogs and a lot of people don't realize this are sent to research facilities for animal testing and they're tortured just like rats are rabbits other animals for the remainder of their days and then tossed away like garbage so that we can you know know whether our certain products are safe for our skin these are all dogs that were beloved family members dogs who did nothing wrong nothing to deserve to be discriminated in the way that this law you know puts upon them Dogs like Mybella and Dubbers, who are often mistaken as targeted breeds. And so instead, there must be a responsible ownership model in place under which all dog owners are treated equally, just like their dogs are. A model under which owners are educated about responsible ownership. Some people truly don't know what that means. Uh, and a model under which training is mandated for all dog owners. 
Children need to be taught in schools, in my opinion, about safe interactions with dogs and responsible ownership of dogs, whether you actually own one or not. Because I've learned firsthand with my own child that it's never too young to start. I've also, having my own young child and my own dog, seen an incredible amount of children run up to our dog, run behind our dog, run around our dog, approach our dog without asking. A lot of behaviors that could easily be taught to be approached in a much more safe way. Um, An ownership model under which heavy, stiff fines and penalties are enforced for those who do not respect the privilege of owning a dog. And I also think microchipping and licensing needs to be enforced. But these laws, bottom line, must be breed neutral and must focus on responsible ownership of the dog, not on the physical appearance of the dog. It's frustrating to think that while there are solutions out there that have been proven to actually benefit and protect our communities, there are still places that look to breed discriminatory legislation as the answer. When I spoke with MPP Rick Nichols, who you'll hear from in a later episode, he mentioned to me that he had a stack of thousands of flyers Alex Packard had put together about safety and awareness around your dog or a dog you don't know. Adjusting our dog laws to promote that kind of initiative and focusing on punishing dangerous dog owners over well-behaved dogs who look a certain way are exactly the sort of moves we need to be making to help Ontario be a safer place. When I spoke with Emily, we talked at length about her two dogs, Bella and Dubbers, and the impact they both had on her life. I want to share with you some of her words about Bella because as much as I want to share with this audience facts and information, I think it's equally important to not forget the face of this issue, the faces of these incredible dogs and the families that love them. So, Emily, tell me about your sweet Bella. How long do we have? (laughs) uh, Bella came into my life when my now husband, Michael, came back into my life because we were in each other's lives in high school and then lost touch for a long time. So Michael and I have been together for eight years ago now. And (laughs) at first, Bella looked at me like that suspicious sister does who's close with her brother when you start dating her brother. And it took a long time for Bella to warm up to me. And I really think that was because I'd never had a dog and I didn't really know how to act around one at first, which sounds hilarious now, but that's, that's honest. And then one night on a night where I experienced some of the most excruciating emotional pain of my life, she came to me, um, after months, I mean, she would always sit on the couch behind Michael. It was the funniest thing. She used to climb in behind him. So he'd sit on the edge of the couch. We'd watch a whole movie like that or a whole hockey game. But it was like she wanted to sit next to him, but I also wanted to sit next to him. It was almost like a little unspoken battle. <laughs> but then that night when my heart was completely shattered, I got out of bed and went and sat in the living room in the dark, alone, crying that type of cry when you feel like you might split in half. And there she was. Out of nowhere, she just stealthily arrived at my feet, staring up at me. And then she just jumped up on the couch beside me and put her head in my lap. And at first I was stunned and taken aback. And then I started petting her, almost like my breathing depended upon this. <laughs> and it changed everything between us. That peace and that simple action brought to me in that moment and the realization that this dog had felt my pain from half a house away and had come to me that way. Everything was different between us after that. She became our dog, not just his dog. And the empathy that Bella had, just like in that night, was a trait that remained throughout the rest of her life. She she knew me and understood me better than any person I've ever known. And then almost a year after we'd been dating, 
about a month after I'd moved into his place, Michael suffered a near fatal workplace accident and he was temporarily unable to walk for several months. And suddenly I needed to not only look after him, and I was happy to do so, but also to be responsible for taking care of Bella. And I'd already started to learn about BSL at this point, but the thought of walking her without Michael really worried me initially. But after a few times out together, Michael told me to try and let her off leash in our yard. And there was a bridge at the end of this yard where we used to live that led out to the street and Bella had been trained militantly to never ever run past the bridge. She would whip like lightning, we used to call her the white lightning, around our property, but she would always stop at the bridge. And all of a sudden, you know, Michael says, well, you know, she'll be fine. And I was terrified. <laughs> but his his belief in her was so strong that he, he compelled me to do it. And I guess I should explain that the, the problem was that I had lost a lot of faith in myself at that point in my life. I had found Michael again about a year after I had left a very abusive marriage. And I had really lost faith in my ability to trust my instincts about most things. And nobody helped me to get past that more than Bella did. That very day, that day when she stopped at that bridge, because I had told her to, was the day that I started to get my authentic self back. And I have Bella to thank for that. The bond oh, that Bella and I shared is, is really not something I can make anyone understand in a few minutes worth of words. I'm actually writing a book about our relationship for that very reason, because while our bond was extraordinary, through Bella, I've met many other people who have extraordinary bonds with their dogs, and all of their stories are so remarkable and inspiring, especially from, in my opinion, the mental health aspect is really interesting to me, and I want to share mine as well. But I will say that for eight years, she, she made my life whole. She was so well-behaved, so stunningly beautiful. <laughs> she really was extraordinary, and she propelled me into a world of advocacy and of activism against the discrimination that is BSL, against the disgusting crime of dogfighting, into a role of teaching by example the importance of responsible dog ownership, teaching safe interactions between children and dogs, which is something in which I'll be certified this year. She inspired me to write children's books, the first of which is going to be published this year, which is about the relationship between my daughter, Sydney, and her canine sister, but also takes into account elements of BSL into the storyline. She inspired me to take six canine behavior certification courses. She inspired my own blog. I've given radio and television interviews about BSL. She led me to this podcast. <laughs> so much of who I am is because of who she was. And when she left this world last year, Oh, my heart was just irrevocably broken. I've lost a lot in my life, but no pain was as suffocating as losing her. I miss her every single day. But uh, because our bond was so strong, I really do feel her with me all the time. We see her in the sunshine. We have orbs and pink rainbows appear in photos, sometimes with no explanation, especially in pictures of Sydney, my daughter, and our other dog, Dubbers. Um, a dear friend of mine gave us a memorial wind chime, which is the same one made by the artist who created them for the owners of the Victory Dogs when their dogs passed. And we, we always say we can hear Bella in the wind. She'll never truly leave me. And Bella really was the soulmate of my life. In our next episode, we're going to focus on another crucial part of this equation by talking about responsible ownership and what that really looks like. This week's show notes include important links to resources about dog safety and bite prevention. If this podcast is starting to get you fired up about BSL, 
You can also find links on how to contact your local MPP about Bill 147, which has passed its second reading already and needs to be put through right away. Thanks for coming to the Pity Party. You can find show notes for this episode and lots of great links on our website, pityparty.blog. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at pitypartypod. Thank you to Emily Clare for being featured in this episode and the Ontario Coalition Against BSL for their support. All of the music in this episode is by Crowander, and the show is written, edited, and produced by me, Sydney Shapansky. If you want to join the party or have a story or question surrounding BSL, send an email or voice note to listeners at pityparty.blog. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss our next episode. Is this the most fun thing we've ever done?